brought to you by Terra Force Media. I'm your host, Jacob Randall, and this is Crime of Your Life. In early December of 1994, 19-year-old Melissa Witt was abducted from the parking lot of a bowling alley in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Over a month later, her body was found in the Ozark National Forest. Despite years of investigations and multiple suspects coming across police radar, no one has ever been convicted of the crime. In the first episode of Crime of Your Life, I talked about the two main suspects in the case. Their names are Travis Dale Crouch and Larry Swearingen. Now, if you haven't listened to the first episode, hit pause right now, go back and listen to it before going any further on this recording. But if you did listen to the episode, then as you may remember, Travis Crouch is currently in prison after having been convicted of sexual assault against a young woman in Colorado. Larry Swearingen was executed in 2019 by the state of Texas for the murder of another young woman named Melissa Trotter. Both of these suspects were brought to the attention of police for different reasons. And I want to be clear, these men aren't the only suspects, and it's entirely possible that they aren't even involved in the crime. But most of the people I talk to about this case can't seem to make up their mind on either one of them. On the one hand, it is Travis Crouch who grew up in the Franklin County area and at one point lived and worked within miles of the location where Melissa's body was discovered. He was also reported to have been driving a Chevrolet Caprice near the bowling alley on the night she was abducted. That doesn't strike me as coincidental. But on the other hand, Larry Swearingen was held responsible for ending the life of a young woman who held a truly disturbing number of similarities to Melissa Witt. Similarities that might make you wonder if Swearingen was a serial killer with a specific type, someone who goes after women who are reasonably identical to each other. And he was also reported to have been in Arkansas shortly before Melissa Witt vanished. So it's difficult to decide which one is a more likely suspect, isn't it? But let's back up a little bit. You may have noticed that I said Larry Swearingen was held responsible for ending the life of a young woman. That isn't to say that he didn't do it. Judges and prosecutors have indicated that mountains of circumstantial evidence led to his conviction. But apart from the fact that he maintained his innocence up until his last moment on this earth, There are also many people who continue to question whether he actually did do it. Which brings me to The Innocence Project. The Innocence Project was founded in 1992. Their mission is to exonerate wrongfully convicted people through DNA testing. They also work to reform the criminal justice system and to eliminate future false convictions and they are well known for succeeding in freeing a lot of innocent people from prison. If you visit their website at innocenceproject.org, you can see for yourself how many people have been incarcerated for years for crimes they didn't commit. Though it isn't an easy task to get the advocacy group to believe in the innocence of someone who has been convicted of a crime, because after all, the DNA evidence they need in order to pursue exoneration 
if it even exists in the first place, isn't really an easy thing to get your hands on once a criminal case has been closed. It typically requires expensive re-examination and new interpretations by independent parties. And for any of that to happen, frequently the person whose guilt is in question has some kind of support system of people who believe in them and are willing to pursue their freedom on their behalf. But despite their failed efforts to halt his execution, the Innocence Project did believe in the innocence of Larry Swearingen, or in the least, that he was convicted of a serious crime based on circumstance and flawed DNA testing. Shortly after his final minutes, the organization released a statement in support of Swearingen, where they expressed their view that he was wrongfully sentenced to die for a crime he never committed. Conversely, victims' advocates, family members, the authorities, and many other people firmly believe that Larry Swearingen did in fact murder Melissa Trotter, and that he may be responsible for other murders in the 1990s. But when an organization like the Innocence Project pursues exoneration for someone they believe has been falsely convicted of a serious crime in the context of our criminal justice system, where sometimes people truly are falsely convicted, it creates a glaring question mark all over the actual crime at the heart of the prosecution. Because Larry Swearingen is no longer alive, that question mark may never actually go away, especially when we consider whether or not he is responsible for the murder of Melissa Witt. This information is important to take into account as the pursuit of justice continues. And while I presented Travis Crouch and Larry Swearingen as the two most notable suspects in the Melissa Witt case, there is at least one more person worth mentioning whose name has come up time and time again in relation to the crime. And maybe it's just an ongoing rumor, something that will continue to circulate without ever revealing any answers or without ever being fully put to rest. But nonetheless, it keeps happening. This person, however unsubstantiated, and regardless of whether police believe he is involved, continues to be a part of the conversation regarding who abducted and murdered Melissa Witt. And the name of this person is Charles Ray Vines. Charles Ray Vines was a resident of Fort Smith, Arkansas, who was convicted of the rape and murder of multiple women in the area. On a Sunday morning in June of 1993, at around 10 a.m., members of Phoenix Village Baptist Church in Fort Smith were settling into their seats to listen to the early services for the day when they noticed something out of the ordinary. A woman named Juanita Wofford wasn't sitting in her usual pew. In fact, she wasn't sitting anywhere in attendance at all. Juanita Wofford was known as a dedicated churchgoer and when she didn't show up that day, a fellow attendee named J.W. McAlphin noticed immediately. After the services ended, he and a friend of his went over to Juanita's house to check on her. Upon arriving at her residence, they could see that the screen on Juanita's security door had been cut, granting access to the main front door, which had been left open. As they moved closer to the entryway and looked inside, they saw a trail of blood. They called police right away as investigators descended upon Juanita's house, and it became apparent that blood was everywhere. 
a terribly violent struggle had taken place, and in the bedroom, the battered body of 58-year-old Juanita Wofford was discovered on her bed. She had been brutalized and sexually assaulted. Detectives began speaking to people in the neighborhood to see if they could find any witnesses who may have noticed something strange that day, or anyone who may have seen someone outside of Juanita's house. They would also look for other crimes that had occurred in the area around the same time, and sure enough, they realized that what happened to Juanita was almost exactly what happened to another woman named Lily Jones just two months earlier. 89-year-old Lily Jones was resting on her couch one night when she received a knock on her door. A man was standing on her front porch, and he asked her if he could come inside and use the telephone, but she refused and asked him to go away. Only, he didn't go away. At least, not until after he forced his way into her home and sexually assaulted her. Luckily, Lily managed to survive, but her attacker remained elusive. For the time being, Juanita's murder and this attack would go unsolved. And then, on August 10th, 1995, yet another woman who had lived in the area was found to be the victim of a violent attack. 74-year-old Ruth Henderson was found dead in her bed in a dreadful crime scene that looked familiar enough to the police for them to conclude that they were chasing a multiple murderer, and maybe even a serial killer. Technically, serial killers are classified as such if they've murdered at least three or more people. Eventually, DNA evidence would determine that Charles Ray Vines was the man that police were looking for, and he was convicted of these crimes. Now, of course, these three separate occurrences are quite different from the abduction and murder of Melissa Witt. The women in these cases were of a different age range than Melissa, and they were all attacked in their homes. They were all severely battered, and although decomposition of Melissa's body would obscure the extent of her injuries, the most serious physical damage she appeared to have suffered was isolated to the head trauma she received in the Bowling World parking lot, and ultimately the final act that ended her life, strangulation. But one final attack occurred before Charles Ray Vines was apprehended, and this one was somewhat different from the others, because the victim in this case was much younger than the previous victims. On March 28th in the year 2000, one county over from Fort Smith, Arkansas, a man named James Qualls and his wife Sheila returned to their home after visiting with a neighbor, and they noticed a truck in their driveway that belonged to someone who lived nearby. And when they stepped inside their house, they found the owner of the vehicle, Charles Ray Vines, stabbing and sexually assaulting their 16-year-old daughter. James Qualls rescued his daughter by firing a couple of shots from a gun he owned, and then pistol-whipped the assailant until police arrived. Charles Ray Vines was sent to prison for the rest of his life, and only after he was incarcerated would he provide the details of his crimes. He caused an unfathomable amount of terror and heartache in the community that affected so many people, and he has denied any involvement in Melissa Witt's death. Some of the same detectives who sent him to prison also worked on tracking down Melissa's killer, 
and seeing as how they would likely know better than anyone else if he was involved, and he still hasn't been officially connected to the case, then it seems like, at least for now, that it really is just a rumor. But this is just one investigation that tends to orbit around the Melissa Witt case, appearing as though it could possibly be connected, but lacking the evidence to suggest that it's even likely. And that's a similar assessment to the one that we can make when we examine one other crime that occurred just a little over six months after Melissa was abducted, and in the midst of the crimes committed by Charles Ray Vines, one other horrifying incident that continues to haunt the family of the victim today, which is the unsolved abduction of six-year-old Morgan Nick. On June 9, 1996, Morgan Nick was attending a Little League baseball game in Alma, Arkansas, which is just two towns away from Fort Smith where Melissa Witt was abducted. At around 10.30 p.m., Morgan asked her mother Colleen if she could go with her friends to catch lightning bugs. Colleen had planned to take Morgan home soon, and against her own initial hesitation, she gave her daughter permission to go play with her friends. They would only be a short distance away, and the ballpark wasn't a large area, so it didn't seem like an unsafe idea. But just 15 minutes later, Morgan was seen near her mother's vehicle in the parking area as she emptied sand out of her shoes. Her friends were doing the same thing, only they were all together, a few dozen feet away, and Morgan was alone. Once the game was ending, Colleen started looking for her daughter. Morgan's friends told Colleen that she would find her by their vehicle, but when Colleen got to the car, there was no sign of Morgan. It's been over 25 years, and she hasn't been seen or heard from since. Morgan was last seen wearing a green Girl Scouts t-shirt, blue denim shorts, and white tennis shoes. Morgan's friends would later tell police that they noticed a creepy man in the area where Morgan was emptying out her shoes, and that earlier, the man had approached a group of children Morgan had been playing with and asked them a question. Some reports have noted that the police are aware of what was said in the conversation, but that information hasn't been released publicly. Witnesses would also state that the man was approximately 23 to 38 years old, 6 feet tall and around 180 pounds, with black or salt and pepper hair. He was also said to have a visibly hairy chest, a detail that was noticeable because he was shirtless, wearing blue cut-off jeans and no shoes. Witnesses would also say that the man had a, quote, hillbilly accent, end quote. I was born and raised in the state of Arkansas, and I can attest to the fact that many of the people there have southern accents. So the fact that this person was described as having a hillbilly accent it makes me think that it was more Southern than what you might usually hear. Frankly, it immediately reminds me of the mysterious phone call in the Melissa Witt case where the older woman and the younger man spoke with heavy Southern accents. That phone call is suspected of being an attempt to report the discovery of Melissa's body in the Ozark National Forest and was made approximately six months before Morgan Nick was abducted. The creepy man remains unidentified. 
but a red Ford pickup truck with a white camper attached that appeared to be a few inches shorter than the vehicle itself was spotted in the parking lot not far from where Morgan was last seen. The camper also had windows covered by curtains and may have had some exterior damage on its right rear end. The vehicle seemed to have disappeared right around when Morgan disappeared. The Morgan-Nick abduction baffled police and it traumatized the local community and perhaps the entire state of Arkansas. It was a shocking and tragic occurrence that had parents holding their children more closely and teaching them about the dangers of predators that sometimes lurk among us in the darkness. Law enforcement officials would also recognize that there may be a connection between this case and two other attempted abductions that took place in Alma and Fort Smith on the same day and curiously on the day after Morgan Nick was abducted. Earlier in the day in Alma, on June 9th, a four-year-old girl was enticed into a red pickup truck by a strange man, but was rescued when her mother saw what was about to happen and put a stop to it. On June 10th, in Fort Smith, which is about 15 miles from Alma, police believe the same strange man attempted to lure a nine-year-old girl into the men's restroom of a convenience store, but the girl resisted and managed to get away. The suspect in these abduction attempts hasn't been positively linked to Morgan Nick's abduction, but police believe there is a connection, and to the casual observer, it definitely seems like someone extremely dangerous was making their way from town to town looking for a vulnerable person to abduct, looking for a child to abduct. And that's one of the reasons why these occurrences may not be connected to the unsolved abduction and murder of Melissa Witt. Because Melissa Witt was a 19-year-old college student, the victim profile in her case is different from the others. But seeing as how Melissa's case, Morgan Nick's case, and the other abduction attempts are all unsolved and all took place within 20 miles of each other within the same seven-month period, it's certainly possible isn't it? The years continue to pass by without any resolution for these crimes, and this specific kind of criminal activity occurring with this amount of frequency was unusual for the Northwest Arkansas area. If you're listening to this podcast, you may have more questions now than when you started, and I'm right there with you. I can't even say for sure what I believe about these cases. Is the unsolved abduction and murder of Melissa Witt connected to the unsolved abduction of Morgan Nick? Was Charles Ray Vines telling the truth in the early 2000s when he denied any involvement in the Melissa Witt case as he was sent to prison for crimes against women? Or is it Travis Crouch or Larry Swearingen who is responsible for the death of Melissa Witt? I've said before that I still have hope that Melissa's case will be solved, and I feel the same way about Morgan Nick's case. Morgan's mother, Colleen, has made it her life's work to find Morgan and to end the abduction and exploitation of children in the United States. Her efforts have led to significant changes in how Arkansas police operate when it comes to these investigations, and she has greatly increased the awareness of these kinds of crimes for people all across the country. 
For more information on Morgan Nick and the incredible work her mother Colleen has been doing, please visit morgannickfoundation.com. And if you have any information that could help solve the case, then you should contact the Alma, Arkansas Police Department. For more information on the Melissa Witt case, please visit whokilledmissywitt.com or the Who Killed Missy Witt Facebook page. And if you have information that could help solve her case, you should contact the Fort Smith Police Department. This episode was created with information provided by multiple news publications. Sources include the Arkansas Southwest Times Record, texastribune.org, aymag.com, magnoliareporter.com, 5newsonline.com, and 4029tv.com, with additional information provided by the innocenceproject.org, charlieproject.org, the original cold case files on A&E, whokilledmissywit.com, and morgannickfoundation.com. Special thanks goes out to my good friends Kyle Shelley and Aston Herman. They have an excellent show on YouTube called Highly Detailed News that I highly encourage you to check out. And thank you to Joey Campos for the artwork for this show. You can see more of his work by visiting joeycampos.com. And most of all, thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can sign up at patreon.com slash crimeofyourlifepodcast, and you can get access to premium content like bonus episodes and additional audio. You can also learn about upcoming new episodes by following the show on Twitter at Crime of Your Life, and you can email me directly at crimeofyourlife at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. My name is Jacob Randall, and you've been listening to Crime of Your Life.